This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Like, if you follow me, you know where I stand. I wrote a song about it. And then you're saying, yeah, but like you can interpret it however you want. And different songs yeah, mean different absolutely. things to different If you people. never knew me, if you never knew me, you hear the song for the first time, you could think something completely different. It strikes me as a Freedom Convoy anthem. That's how it strikes yeah. me. And I think Great. it's being embraced that's by the no supporters problem. of the Freedom Convoy. That's no no problem if that's how you interpret it. If it's it. your song and you're okay with it, it then that's not, okay with you. It was not my... No, that That's you putting words into my mind. No, no, no. I'm just telling so, you my impression of and it. And if that's your impression, that's totally fine because music is subjective. Mm. But I never set out once to write the anthem of the Freedom Convoy. That was yesterday's interview with Brett Kissel. Welcome to this edition of Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. John Hicks. Great episode yesterday. Yeah, it was awesome. A lot of chatter about it. And we wanted to get to some emails uh, from those of you that did get a chance to check it out. If you missed it, the country star joining us in the Real Talk studio yesterday for an extended length interview about his new album project, The Compass Project. It's four albums, uh, kicking off with one uh, including a song called Line in the Sand. We got into it. Is it a Freedom Convoy anthem or not? We asked the direct question to Kissel, who insists that it's not, and everybody's talking about it. We appreciate the engagement. I want to get to a couple of emails that you sent us, Jillian in particular, and Catherine as well. Uh, I really liked this assessment of it from Mike, who says, I caught the Kissel interview with Jesperson on Real Talk. And I thought he carried himself well, and he's a good musician. We obviously disagree on COVID public policy. He's entitled to his point of view. Frankly, it's a good song in abstract, and people need to learn to speak to each other. It was that last part that resonated with me, John. People need to learn to speak to each other, which is what a lot of folks seem to be debating in the 24 hours uh, since that interview happened right here around this table. You can let us know what you think if you check it out, if you didn't get a chance to check out that interview i encourage you to do so it's one of those uncomfortable ones you know where where conversation goes to places that force you to really think hard about where you stand on something and why and you and i did a lot of talking after the show and we did and yeah. reminded each other that that's kind of the whole point of why we show up to work every single day i thought it was a great interview and if i have to say you know obviously there was a lot of things brett said i didn't agree with but if one positive thing i can agree with him on is that he's true to himself and that's what we want when people come on the show we want them to say what they really think and to not back off i think you pushed a little he pushed back and it was real talk and it was exactly what the show endeavors to do yeah i, I appreciated his insights on, on whether or not he thinks that we're ever going to get back to normal about the pandemic uh, tldr his answer is no uh he, he he figures that everything was just too divisive and some of the commentary that we saw after the interview would, would lead me to maybe believe the same thing. Now, I've, I've been told in past, uh, John, by people with their heads screwed on right, that if you have both sides, so to speak, both hammering down on you for something, mm -hmm. it's probably a sign that you're doing something right. And and, and yesterday <laughs> we had the, the ardent, can I say the right wingers? We had the ardent right wingers pissed off at me, uh, you know, suggesting that I was too hard on Brett, that my questions were too direct that I was trying to get too political, that I was trying to paint him into a corner. 
And then we had all the lefties, the hard left uh, coming at me for for platforming Brett, uh, for for one white bro helping out another white bro for a bunch of dude (laughs) bros scratching each other's backs. Uh, And if word on the street is to be believed, it sounds like even the singer himself, Brett Kissel's a little bit pissed off at me for the interview. Uh, I've reached out to him. And I hope that's not the case, but he has not replied. I'm hoping that maybe we can grab a beer sometime, just like he suggested we should do when he sat here in this table talking to us about it. Uh, We're going to get to Evan Scrimshaw, Max Fawcett, just a little bit. We're going to talk politics today. Is it time for Rachel Notley to panic? But first, when we ask you to chime in and share your thoughts on the show, when we ask you to chew on what you hear and then let us know how you're digesting it, sorry for the graphic imagery, uh, we better make good on reading those emails, right? You can be in touch with the show anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I appreciated this one from Jillian. She sent us a good long one. A portion of her words, she says, I don't know Brett Kissel, obviously, but he gets my spidey senses tingling for all the wrong reasons. She says, Brett, from the bottom of my heart, you're entitled to your views and opinions, but not owning them makes you seem disingenuous. In 2023, playing both sides doesn't work anymore. I had people saying that we were both sidesing the interview yesterday. Mm-hmm. I think people have lost their understanding of what that actually means. I'm not talking about you, Jillian. Uh, she says, in 2023, it just doesn't work. You know, in, in the spirit of Black History Month, we remind folks that it's not good enough uh, to, quote, not be racist. You know, we ask that folks be anti-racist, for example. Call shit out when you see it. Uh, so don't trust these so-called nice guys who want to pretend they're not taking a stand because they're open to both sides. You can't both sides every issue. Every issue shouldn't be a fight. Not every issue requires you to take a stand. Uh, but there are clear issues of right and wrong, and I feel the middle is starting to become a place for cowards or closet bigots to hide. She says, this is just my two pennies. That from Jillian. I appreciate that. And this one uh, caused me to to really stop and think. I read this this morning. It, it arrived in my inbox today at 5.24 a.m. This is from Catherine. It says, as I watched your interview uh, with Brett Kissel, I felt a pain in the center of my chest. I was so angry, but, but the pain came from something much deeper than his song or from his words. Catherine says, the Freedom Convoy was the straw that broke the back of half of my friendships. My strong sense of civic duty clashed with other people's need for individual freedom. You know, interesting thing about communicable diseases, you defeat them most successfully when we act together as a society, not with an every man for himself mentality. You know, people whose lives were disrupted because they refused to follow public health measures had the freedom to not get vaccinated, not wear a mask, but no freedom exists in a vacuum. And every right comes with a responsibility and every action has a consequence. And most of us did our part and got the jab and wore a mask and socially distanced. And I'm sure glad that the individual freedom bunch weren't around during World War II. If they think that uh, vaccination is an imposition, I wonder how they would have reacted to food rationing and conscription. Now, here's why the convoy and Mr. Kissel's interview hit me so hard. Only my counselor and immediate family know this story until now. Catherine says some personal sacrifices made during the pandemic were made in powerful and painful silence. I lost my brother to suicide in May of 2020 during the first lockdown. He had Huntington's dementia and was stuck in a nursing home. This was before the vaccine came out. And due to a few COVID cases at the facility, no visitors were allowed in and no patients were allowed out. And he would call us angry and desperate. He felt trapped. We'd call the staff. They couldn't force him to take his meds because we needed a medical reassessment in order for us to make medical decisions for him. We tried to get help from his Huntington's doctors. Everything was on Zoom. 
Things moved at a glacial pace. And before we could get the document signed, he stopped eating and bathing and went off his meds. He spiraled into delusion and packed all of his belongings and tried to leave. And they thwarted him, but that pushed him even further into desperation. If we would have been able to see him or even bring him home for a while, we we might have been able to calm him down. But there were absolutely no exceptions to the rules. And, And when he was not permitted to leave, he lost all hope. And feeling utterly alone and abandoned, he hung himself from his shower. He was 56. We never got a proper goodbye. He died around 3 p.m. At least that's what the medical examiner said. We didn't find out about his death until a police officer came to my sister's door at 8 o'clock that night. The next and last time I saw my brother was in a plain pine box. No casket. He wanted to be cremated. I looked into his lifeless face and I couldn't recognize him. He was a force of nature when he was alive. I put my hand on his stiff, cold chest and I said goodbye to his body. That was close to three years ago and I'm still coming to terms with the guilt of not being able to be there for him. So You know, Mr. Kissel, as you can see, I have every reason to be aggrieved about the sacrifices made during the pandemic, but I didn't refuse the vaccine or the mask. I wanted to do everything in my power to defeat the disease, which contributed to my brother's anguish and death. I didn't blame the government or public health officials. I blamed the virus. I didn't stand outside hospitals harassing healthcare workers. I did everything I could to keep myself and my loved ones out of overloaded ICUs. Catherine says, I'm an independent artist and and many of our shows were canceled because of the pandemic. Instead of digging in my heels and resisting public health measures, I doubled down on trying to stop its spread. She says, thanks for letting me vent. If you read this on air, please just use my first name. I don't need freedom loving harassment. Catherine says, I started writing this at quarter after three in the morning and now it's quarter after five. I was so upset I couldn't sleep until this was off my chest. Thanks, Catherine, for sharing, and we're so sorry for your loss. These conversations resonate with people in big ways, and that's never lost on us. And it's why we commit to you that we will continue to have real talk about issues that matter, whether it's uncomfortable or not, whether it pisses people off or not, because we understand the stakes and we understand what we're dealing with. And chances are, if you're downloading this podcast or streaming this on YouTube, you do too. And we're grateful for it. We're going to be talking politics for the rest of this show, except for a brief break to the mountains. We're going to take you ice climbing in Moline Canyon in a little bit. Evan Scrimshaw and then Max Fawcett. You know, these conversations happen because of sponsors like the team at Urban Timber who understand that these conversations oftentimes happen best when they're face-to-face around tables like the one in our studio. They designed and built ours. They would love to build yours. Ours is white oak with epoxy. I'm absolutely in love with this thing. Urban Timber is doing everything from kitchen tables, end tables, side tables, coffee tables, but custom flooring as well, wood paneling and installations on houses and the like. I mean, you dream it up. Maybe it's a new shelving setup in a home you're looking to completely reinvent. The history here, the stories that their installations tell are second to none. Check out their boxcar collection in particular at urbantimber.ca or of course you can go see them at their beautiful new West Edmonton showroom. Uh, This collection crafted from reclaimed rail car planks. 
that have traveled millions of miles across North America, there is nothing like the unique element that a boxcar table bring, maybe a boxcar countertop in your renovated or brand new kitchen. You won't find anything more durable. You won't find anything that brings a better story than the boxcar collection at Urban Timber. Coming up on Friday, by the way, our Real Talk Roundtable presented by Urban Timber Improv Stars, Johnny. This is going to be a blast on Friday. I can't wait. Hey, shout out to those of you that showed up at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park on Valentine's Day yesterday to pick up your special treat for your loved ones. Now that we're past February 14th, I get to tell you about the sauced and tossed honey barbecue glazed chicken strip basket. If you haven't tried the chicken strips at Dairy Queen, these are on a whole other level. These blow the doors off anything else you might have tried in this space. You can find them at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Savory, uh-huh, sweet, yup. They've got all your cravings covered with the honey barbecue sauced and tossed chicken strip basket. And of course, we want to let you know about our Real Talk Cast 2.0 Maple Bourbon. You can find it exclusively at Whiskey Drop in West Edmonton. Now you're going, hang on a second. I'm, I love Real Talk. You loved our first bourbon last year. You want to get your hands on this one, but you live in Winnipeg or Hamilton or Halifax or Nanaimo? No worries. Whiskey Drop ships. That's right. You go to their website, whiskeydrop.ca. You click on the search tab and punch in Real Talk, and you're going to find it right there. There it is, our Broken Barrel Maple Bourbon. This thing is done, as the name would suggest, they smash up old barrels. In this case, with our bourbon, old barrels that held maple syrup. Can you imagine what that wood contains, the flavor within? They smash it up with sledgehammers. They add those staves, the splinters, into the virgin oak cask. That has that whiskey in there and the flavor infusion that follows will knock your socks off. If you're into maple old fashions, you need to get your hands on a Real Talk maple bourbon bottle from Whiskey Drop at whiskeydrop.ca. Well, is it time for Rachel Notley to panic? Uh, the provincial election in Alberta doesn't go down till the end of May, but some might argue that it's never too soon unless you're a conservative in Alberta to hit that panic button. Evan Scrimshaw writes about politics on his Substack, Scrimshaw Unscripted. He's also the host of the popular Scrimshaw Show podcast. And this morning, he makes his Real Talk debut. It is so good to see your face, pal. Shout out to the Montreal Expos. Love the cap. How you doing? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you got it. You write about it in, in Alberta. You cover Alberta politics as part of your commentary. You say, if the NDP barely cares, why should we? You think the NDP barely cares? Is that the vibe you're getting from Rachel Notley and her team three months out from an election? We're getting performative opposition from Rachel Notley at this point. They are doing day-to-day managerial opposition against a government that, frankly, gives you a lot of targets. They're doing sort of headline of the day, let's talk about, you know, oh, Daniel Smith said crazy thing X, so let's respond with Y. But the problem is, it's all just letting Daniel Smith dictate the message. They're not challenging any of the broader assumptions that underlie anything Daniel Smith is doing. And they're not proposing any coherent suite of policies. And to the extent that they have policies, they're just kind of plucking them out of the ether and being like, oh, a new hospital for Red Deer, the South Edmonton Hospital, we'll get that one back on track. Like, 
there's no coherent message. There's no sort of detailed plan of what it is. And they also don't seem to know how they're going to win because the voters they need to win are well-educated suburban uh, degree holders in Calgary. And they're not making a Calgary argument. They're making an Edmonton argument, but they already have all but one of the seats in Edmonton. And they don't seem to get the voters they actually need if they're going to win the election. So they're stuck. You say uh, you've been writing for months now, uh, as a matter of fact, for a couple of years, that the NDP's position was great if you thought that the UCP were so hated as to be capable of winning by default. You said that the NDP was not doing anything to actively win this election. You say that Notley has positioned herself with the party in the ideological dead zone, not running as centrists, but also not really standing for anything. This whole idea of centrist politics, I don't have to tell you this, Evan, but it, but it, it's kind of been unofficially the zone or the territory that the Alberta party has tried to occupy. And to this point, it hasn't really worked. What would it look like for you, for the Notley NDP to stand for something what would be something bold and big that you think would be sellable in alberta i mean the fact that there's not high that she's not pitching a high-speed rail from calgary to, to edmonton is i think ludicrous but the problem with the ndp is they can't figure out if they want to be sort of like basically soft conservatives who disagree on the social stuff basically the redford pcs right Mostly, mostly on the same page as the then Wild Rose on economics, but you know they they triangulated on social issues. Or if they want to be this like staunchly left wing party that a lot of the Edmontonian base of the party and certainly a lot of the membership wants them to be, they don't know what what zone to pick, and so what they just end up is end up with is this weird amalgamation of oh we'll spend some more money on hospitals and we'll do you know some new spending stuff here and we'll have a carbon price but you know we'll kind of let the details sort of evaporate on that and it just leads to this place where they've annoyed enough people who agree on the social liberalism who don't like daniel smith who don't like unvaccinated people and think that they're selfish but their lack of any actual tangible policy like a high-speed rail link, like an actual strategy on revitalizing downtown, what to do with the stadium or the, the, the hockey arena, right? There's no high-catching policy there, which means that they're just kind of deflating people who might turn out to vote, might not. You're not going to get an energized base for sort of mealy-mouth kind of sort of liberalism, but not really liberalism. But you're doing enough incoherence to annoy the people who make a lot of money in, in, in sort of white collar Calgary professions who don't aren't comfortable with Daniel Smith, but also don't like the fact that the last time the NDP was in office, they, you know, they were the ones who took the brunt of the income tax hikes. They don't have a strategy and they need to pick one of those two lanes and they're just kind of doing nothing. And they're eventually going to hit the part where the roads diverge and they're just going to kind of drive into grass. We're talking to Evan Scrimshaw at scrimshawunscripted.substack.com. You write the NDP has at best three and a half months to get their heads out of their asses and get into the game. Every minute they waste is a minute that makes Daniel Smith more likely to win a full term. 
It might be that beating a united right in Alberta is impossible, but the NDP can't look itself in the mirror and say it's done everything it can to win. If anything, they've done everything they can to lose this. Danielle Smith has essentially weathered a controversy a week or maybe a controversy every two weeks since she won the leadership several months ago. You would maybe suggest that time might be her enemy, right? But you argue actually quite the opposite. You say that the longer or the more time that passes, the better it is for Danielle Smith's UCP. Take us into that thought. One, it gives you more time to get away from Jason Kenney who was very clearly never going to be able to lead that party to where that party wanted it to go. So the further you get away from COVID, the further you get away from Kenny, the more the right congeals into back behind the UCP and congeals into like an actual fighting force. And two, Daniel Smith is having a disaster of the week, but she's doing it in a sort of Trumpian way where none of the things that she's really like, none of the things that get people like me outraged are things that are moving votes. The problem for Notley is that they need a message. They need a message about that connects Daniel Smith, Jason Kenney, you know, the, the Redford years, you know, and connects the fact that, you know, the, the public health crisis and the, you know, hospital situation is not about Daniel Smith. It's about Smith and Kenny and Redford not spending enough money. They need a coherent message on these things. They need to tie together a narrative that they can easily sell. And the problem is every day they waste, Every, you know, situation, yeah, you can pray that Danielle Smith is going to have another blunder and maybe there will be a lake of fire 2.0, but that was the whole, that was the NDP's whole 2019 strategy was trying to turn every gauche comment from a UCP candidate into this, into what was supposed to be 2019's version of lake of fire. It's not going to work. If the NDP has to prove it is trusted itself and it can't just rely on a split right to win them an election or, you know, hatred because of COVID and because of bad, bad economy. When Danielle Smith's going to go into the next election with a massive budget surplus and presumably a giveaway budget that's going to fund a lot of promises with all the oil money. And if that happens, it's not going to matter because Nolly hasn't, hasn't used the time to make an argument about why the UCP are not are not to be trusted on the economy, which when you're the NDP and economic competence is your like massive glaring, you know, problem. Or perceived problem, maybe perceived problem. Right. Yeah. It's their electoral problem. To be fair, electoral problem. I'm going to rattle off some of the comments here in the live chat because it's smoking right now, which is great. We're talking to Evan Scrimshaw making his real talk debut. Vince says this guy is out to lunch. Vince says the NDP is entirely focused on health care. That's the message. It's health care, health care, health care. Tracy says the NDP is actually out knocking on doors and trying to build its volunteer base through social media. Uh, says I agree that Calgary is extremely important. I, I feel like that's such a foregone conclusion. I almost hesitate to talk about it it's so obvious this provincial and that's not a shot at you tracy the the election will be won or lost in rural areas not to take away from what i'm sure will be some tight races in some rural ridings and you love to see it but calgary is going to be the battleground everybody knows air mitch says i share evan's concern the ndp needs to get its ass in gear now uh, what about this one here from uh, Sharon says, I'm not sure if I agree with this guy, you know, give up on the train. Let's focus on inflation, jobs 
and health care that from Sharon. I mean, I would agree with Sharon in the sense that I think elections are won on what people care about most at that time. Right. Jobs, economy, pipelines. Right. What about this from Muddy Otters Pottery? I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, says this is this isn't the NDP I've been hearing about. The Alberta NDP strategy is firmly in the center, preserving public services, balancing oil and gas with environmental concerns and etc. Glenna makes a great point, says the NDP has to fight an uphill battle against old norms that are entrenched in long term Alberta residents hearts and minds. If the pain of the last few years isn't enough to shift people, it's lost. That from Glenna. That's a great comment. And this one here, uh, I appreciate this as well. Uh, uh, Glenn uh, goes on to say, uh, Curtis, uh, the NDP is ignoring the voters who elected Nehed Nenshi and Don Iveson. Uh, I mean, at one point, obviously, Alberta had two pretty progressive mayors. Uh, I think that right now, probably that holds true, right? I mean, I think it's the word progressive is so supercharged right now, Evan, um, and it's almost being used as a pejorative. But I think it's it's safe to say that that tradition has continued with with Amarjeet Sohi and, of course, Dr. Jody Gondek uh, down in Calgary. So uh, what of what of those comments did did you want to uh, take on there? I mean, obviously, I rattled off a whole bunch of them. I want to give you a chance to respond. So one uh, just saying you're protecting public services and, and you know we care about healthcare. That's not a plan. That's not a strategy, and that's not a message that anybody listens to. We saw it with Doug Ford in Ontario last year, where you know everyone said, "Oh, he's going to privatize your healthcare," and no one listened. No one cared. No one believed that was a credible threat. And it's the same thing with Daniel Smith. No one thinks that just saying, "Oh, you know, we're going to protect public healthcare." Okay, what's that mean? What are you actually going to do? How are you actually going to fix any of the problems? And just the sort of sloganeering isn't going to get you anywhere. Um, on the on the point about yeah, like they are ignoring the voters that elected Nenji and Iveson. Like they are ignoring the core of socially liberal voters, mostly in Calgary, who are willing to vote for left wing political parties or candidates at times. Like the thing, the problem we always forget with Alberta is Alberta is three different political t- uh, traditions two of which have been in the same party forever because of first past the post. But like the, the PCs were always a marriage between like world cultural conservatives for whom like the, the, the like social conservatism and the, you know, abortion stuff and the gay marriage politics back in the day, like that was the stuff that was animating them. And then you had the Calgary cultural, like social, social liberals who wanted their tax cuts and wanted their, you know, most competitive tax rate. And it was always a marriage of convenience. But the NDP has an opening to get those voters, those socially liberal voters, back into the tent because we see it happening federally. We see it happening in, in Toronto. We see it happening in the US. Like socially liberal, fiscally conservative voters are willing to vote for left wing political parties in a way that they never have before. And the NDP is responding to that by running a campaign that's like, that's like pure sort of just like generic left-wing candidates from 2011. We're going to protect healthcare. We're going to, we're going to, you know, be responsible. Okay. It's all just meaningless platitudes. What's the plan? And the other thing to the, to the last comment about, you know, um, we need to, you know, elections are won and lost on the issues voters care about. Politicians have the ability to impact what voters care about. It's not a static, like issue salience is not a static thing. Candidates can make the political weather and Notley is, is reacting too much. She is not making an active case for what the NDP could do. She is 
responding. She is reacting. And the problem is, whether you think she's reacting well or not, it's kind of beside the point. Danielle Smith is setting the is setting the political conditions. Rachel Notley doesn't look like a leader. She looks like an opposition leader. And yeah, she'll probably win a dozen more seats than she did last time. And some of the NDP will call that a victory because, oh, we, you know, we went from 24 seats to mid-30s. Okay, you still have the same amount of power as you did earlier, which is zero. And that's not good enough if you actually care about left-wing values. Yeah, and it would obviously, I would suggest, probably be the last election that Rachel Notley would lead the NDP through. Uh, Evans got him pegged at 39 seats. You can read his logic behind that. What do you call it again? The scrim scoreboard or the scrimshaw scoreboard, I think. Uh, People can check that out. You've also got a great piece you just published this morning, The Politics of Emotion. If you want to find out what supporters of Obama in 2012 and Donald Trump in 2020 have in common, what they have in common with fans of, of Nigel Farage and, and Maxime Bernier, you can check out Evan's Substack at scrimshawunscripted.substack.com. We'll have that link in the show notes. And of course, you can check out his podcast as well, Scrimshaw Show, where he talks a lot of politics, a little bit of football too. Thanks for your time, pal. We appreciate it. Glad to, glad to do this. Hopefully I'll uh, be invited back. There you go. You can follow Evan on Twitter as well at E Scrimshaw. Coming up in just two minutes or less, Max Fawcett yes. is going to get into his piece <laughs> in Canada's National Observer. He's the lead columnist there. He argues Rachel Notley needs to hit the panic button, and we're going to find out why. Hey, does a does a high-speed rail line resonate with you? You're a voter. I mean, you're I, somebody that's going to, you know, you're you're right in the wheelhouse where politicians care about, right? You're like you're like early to mid-30s. You know, you're a young guy. You're a mover and a shaker. You live in the urban center. I'm actually 57. Um, but <laughs> Tell I, us about your skincare routine first. I think, uh, you know, Sharon in the comments said it. Like, we've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah. And everyone knows we need it. So, yeah, I, I, I would love it it would be great to get from one place to another very quickly in this landscape where you know you have weather problems and i know edmonton themselves are trying to fix this whole transit thing but we definitely need like a but is monorail, that the, but, is, but is that the thing where you see a party and a, and a party says you know daniel smith's platform will obviously be you know we're, we're going to stand by alberta's energy workers in the oil and gas sector and the world needs alberta oil and and they're going to get their donations from all the big oil companies did you see sonovas's profits i did the, yeah the, 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 the what was it the, like it, one quarter pro, two two and three quarter billion dollars in profits yeah. anyway so, I, she'll, I so it, she'll have the support of big oil and they're going to talk about it's going to be a recycled version of job and i'm that's not a, a, a slight it's mm-hmm. not a shot it's just probably a fact uh jobs economy and pipelines like that'll kind of be again of maybe, maybe not pipelines as much but jobs in the economy for sure if the opposition or if a, if a competing party is to say well we'll build a high-speed rail line it's not is a, that an, is i that know enough, what you're saying you know what i mean it's not a slam dunk it's it, not something that's going to be like sway a voter yeah. who normally wouldn't vote for her too and I, yeah I, I might say okay that's cool yeah but but i don't know if that's you know i don't know if that's enough to like prompt me to donate and volunteer and tell my friends who i'm voting for it's not and this election is going to be it's going to be cutthroat it's going to be yeah so. yeah justin says evan was not wrong he says that's reality in Alberta. Tony says he brought up some interesting points. Yeah, hey man, you know a lot of people. You know you've been asking to get Evan Scrimshaw on the show. There's a lot of fans of his Substack that are fans of this show, and uh, and we were. I didn't even know what the guy looked like before this. This is he's got a, he's got like a, he's got a great Twitter profile picture that is not him. So it was nice to make his acquaintance. Max Fawcett coming up in just a second. That conversation is presented by our friends at Friesen Brothers, who want to remind you they're proud to present the future of Alberta food in conjunction with Nate. This is an exciting culinary challenge encompassing six 
different teams of Alberta food professionals designed to challenge upcoming food professionals, the future of Alberta's food scene, their butchery, their baking, their culinary expertise, as well as hospitality creativity. They're focusing on really great food, like Friesen Brothers has been doing for more than 60 years. Uh, The six teams will apply traditional skills featuring high-quality Alberta proteins, veggies, Uh, to produce exceptional original dishes made from scratch. Now, here's the deal. You can actually attend this. It's an event coming up February 25th at Ernest's Dining Room at Nate. Uh, It starts at 6 o'clock. 24 delicious dishes. Unbelievable. You can check out more at Friesen.com slash challenge. That's F-R-E-S-O-N dot com slash challenge. If you're a professional engineer that's absolutely, quite frankly, sick and tired of your workplace... It's boring. They don't appreciate you. You're working on projects that are numbing your brain. You need a new challenge. You want to feel valued by your team and by your clients. May I introduce you to Apex Automation? Check out their recently redone, I mean, there's reinvented website. They did a beautiful job on it. As you can see, when you go to apexautomation.ca, they are hiring. You can learn more about the jobs that they have there in wait. And if you click on automation, You can see all of the work that they're doing, including super cool stuff in advanced process control and autonomous vehicles and machinery. If you've worked in in oil and gas, the energy sector, if you've worked in farming or agriculture, you know that autonomous vehicles and machinery are changing the game. Here's your chance to get in on it. You want a new opportunity? You want to infuse some energy into your career? The answer could be found right now at apexautomation.ca. You know, we walk in every morning to this beautiful studio in Edmonton's historic Mercer Warehouse, and we're so grateful for what the team at Complete Care Restoration did for us. When we took over this space, there was a there was a water leak issue in the roof. There was evidence of it everywhere. And of course, we're putting in a ton of electronics here. We said, we can't mess around with this build. We have to have confidence that this is going to be done right. It's why we went with Complete Care Restoration. They have years of experience helping people recover and rebuild build from fire damage and flood damage and and mold and asbestos removal and all of the things that we hate to think about because it just gives us anxiety. We felt zero anxiety with our project in the hands of the team of Complete Care Restoration from our very first consultation to the minute they left with their drills and saws and ladders, Johnny, and headed home. Yeah. I cannot tell you what a pleasure it was to deal with the team at Complete Care Restoration If you encounter a nightmare, like a fire or a flood, chances are your insurance policy will allow you to choose the company that does the work. We recommend you go with Complete Care Restoration. And moving from inside to outside, if this spring or summer, you're hoping to look out your front or back window and really, really be proud of your outdoor space, you're wanting to actually utilize that outdoor space instead of always suggesting the barbecues or the campfires or at your friend's house because you're embarrassed about how your yard looks. It's uninspired. It's messy. It floods when it rains. Hey, Eden Landscaping is a team of problem solvers. As a matter of fact, in the more than 20 years that they've been doing business, Mike, the owner-operator, tells me they have yet to encounter a construction-related problem they haven't been able to solve. I love that confidence. You can browse their services, their portfolio, understand what they can do for you. How about an outdoor kitchen or maybe a water feature? You can learn more about them and make contact today at landscapeedmonton.ca. That's Eden Landscaping, a proud partner of Real Talk. Well, of course, you know Max Fawcett. 
Max uh, writes about politics as the lead columnist at Canada's National Observer, and his recent column, published February 11th, argues that Rachel Notley needs to hit the panic button. Max joining us live on this Wednesday morning. Uh, what, what, first of all, good morning to you. Great to see your face. What prompted you to write this column? I mean, panic, three and a half months out from an election, seems a little, a little early, a little soon, isn't it? Well, I mean, part of that is just trying to uh, to get the clicks with the with the provocative headline. So I, <laughs> I confess that there's there's some of that there. But look, I would much rather see someone in the political world panic too early than panic too late. Um, and I, I am very worried as someone who has a you know a young child who has a, a stake in this province who wants to see it succeed that the NDP is sleepwalking into an election they should be able to win and wanted to write something that kind of shook them uh, out of their seat a little bit. You know, and this has been the product of talking to friends of mine uh, here, in, here in Calgary over the last few months. We're all feeling this. Um, we're all nervous that they are not reading the room down here in Calgary, uh, where the election, I mean, let's be clear, the election will be won and lost in Calgary. With, with all apologies to you up at Edmonton, Edmonton is a done deal. Everybody knows um, it. They, Everybody knows yeah. it. Yeah. As a and, matter of fact, right I think now, I would I think I would bet my car on a clean sweep in Edmonton, uh, because all the NDP has to do is defeat Casey Madu, and and I think that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, but uh, but but carry on. I don't mean to interrupt and step on your toes. Yeah, I mean no bet there from me that they are I think going to get a clean sweep. But the campaign messaging so far feels like it's calibrated to Edmonton. It feels like it's calibrated towards talking to public service workers and the kind of base that the the Alberta NDP had built up under Rachel Notley's leadership in the past. And that may well consolidate their gains. You know, they may well win 35 seats, but as, as Evan said very, very aptly, and he and I agree on, on all of this stuff, it's not going to win them the election. And that's all that matters for, for, you know, those of us who want to see a, a better and brighter future in this province. So, you know, I, I, I noticed that, that Dave Cornwyer in, in his Dave Berta blog, uh, you know, kind of quote tweeted me today in his post. He didn't mention me by name, but he said twice that it, quote, wasn't time to panic. Um, and and look, it you know, it, it is time to panic uh, if, if you're concerned about the state of the Calgary campaign. Uh, they are not resonating with folks down here. They are not speaking the language down here, which is jobs, economy, prosperity. Um, and even the healthcare message is, is, I think, really dangerous because what we have right now in Canada is a rapidly shifting national sort of attitude towards healthcare. I think even two years ago, you know, the idea of standing up for public health care, sure, great, um, that would resonate. But there was just an Ipsos poll came out that said 59% of Canadians are open to more private activity in the healthcare system, 59%. And I guarantee you that number is way higher in Calgary than it is in Edmonton, and it's way higher in Alberta than it is nationally. So if you're coming into Calgary and your message is we will fight to protect the existing system, you are not going to win over those red Tory, blue liberal, Nenshi voters that you need to win those Calgary ridings. You may make your base in Edmonton very, very happy, but you are not going to win the votes that need to be won. And I do not get the sense that they understand the way in which their message is not landing down here. And partly that's because most of their team uh, is from Edmonton. You know, the campaign team, uh, certainly Ms. Notley and her, her senior advisors, they're all up in Edmonton, Strathcona, where I'm sure things feel much better than they do down here in Calgary. Uh, but, but I can promise them uh, the vibe down here is not nearly as uh, keep calm and carry on. 
Uh, people should, if they haven't already, check out our conversation with Rachel Notley. It was a week ago today, Max. Uh, what's Notley's campaign plan in Calgary? You can, of course, find it on our YouTube channel or, or anywhere you get your podcast. That was a week ago today, our conversation uh, with Rachel Notley. I want to touch on two things you said, Max. You, you said one sentence, and I want to split it into two. You said the NDP appears to be sleepwalking toward an election they should be able to win. So so you kind of touched on this already, but with regards to, to sleepwalking, that, that's that's obviously a pointed indictment of strategy. Uh, as Evan was arguing his case just 15 minutes ago, somebody in the live chat said, said they didn't use your phrase, but they basically said they're not sleepwalking. And they said they're out knocking on doors. They're trying to build up a volunteer base. They're trying to get the social media game going. You know, they're, they're, they're working hard in election prep. Other people have been saying, you don't roll out your platform before the writ drops. So give us a sense of, of, of what waking up would look like through your eyes if they are indeed sleepwalking right now. Waking up would, would entail demonstrating a sense of urgency about controlling the narrative in this campaign. And and they should know by now that letting Danielle Smith control the narrative is a good way to lose to Danielle Smith. When she walked into the UCP leadership race at the outset, no one thought she was serious. Many people thought she was a joke candidate. And then she put the Sovereignty Act on the table. Everyone was forced to react to it. And the entire leadership race was about, what do you think of Danielle Smith? Uh, and that is going to be the case again if the NDP does not get out in front of this. And and my concern here, one of my concerns is that, and I referenced this in my piece, the BC NDP in 2013, they came into an election with a you know an unpopular government that had been led by a very unpopular premier who was replaced by a former talk radio host named Christy Clark. Um, they were leading in the polls. Everyone thought it was going to be a cakewalk and they blew it. They ended up giving Christy Clark four more years in government. Who was the campaign manager on that campaign? Well, I'll tell you, it's the same person who's apparently running the campaign for the NDP in 2023. So that that gives me a lot of pause that that their leadership uh, at the campaign level simply does not understand how to conduct this campaign down in Calgary. You know, what would be a good sign of, of, a, of a sense of urgency? Ms. Notley and all of her senior advisors moving to Calgary permanently until the election. That would be a good sign that they not paying visits here, not coming down for events, but literally moving here. So they are here on the ground every second of every day until the election to show that they understand and care about Calgary as much as the UCP candidates will. Because if they don't, uh, you know, they, they, they may do well in Edmonton. Uh, but as I said before, you know, they, they will not do well enough down here to win. Vince says, uh, I'm sorry, is the job killing Sovereignty Act and being the first party to back the conversion of office space to condos not Calgary focused? Uh, Callan says, Fawcett's wrong here, says this is not an election that the NDP should win. The conservative vote is not split. You know, the Alberta Party, the Western Independence Party is not resonating with people. Never before has a progressive party won in Alberta with a united right. Callan's not wrong there. What leads you to believe that this is an election the NDP should win? Well, with all due respect to Callan, that's loser talk. Um, you know, the, the idea that you can't possibly what win. What would it sound like if you didn't respect Callan? Oh, you don't want to hear it. <laughs> trust me. Um but look, uh, Alberta is a rapidly changing province. The idea that we can draw parallels from the 1990s or the two, even the early 2000s to now is simply not uh, a realistic expectation. The, the electorate is rapidly changing. And as you talked about with Evan, we have 
evidence that, you know, Calgary is willing to elect a certain kind of progressive candidate, a certain kind of progressive government under the right. That ran the table against Jeremy Farkas in the last election, every single ward she won. And that was a united right, you know, like uh, Farkas had a lot of the steam behind him. So um, I, I just don't buy the idea that they can't win it. I think that is a little bit of sort of preemptive excuse making uh, for for if they don't win it. Uh, you know, the, the fact remains, this is an unpopular government. Uh, Ms. Notley has a lot of personal popularity, still more than Danielle Smith. They have bags of money. They have an army of organizers. If they can't win this election, what election can they win? Mm. People can read your work at nationalobserver.com. You write, this can't be the outcome that NDP stalwarts imagined just a few months ago when Smith won the leadership in a surprisingly unconvincing fashion. I'm curious for your take on that, because I actually didn't see, I mean, maybe with, with, with Travis Taves aside, there, there weren't really any legitimate, and this is not a slight against the other candidates. I'm not, I'm not saying this to be a jerk, but, but really there were a lot of single digit results when that leadership vote actually went down. I, I, I don't know if I agree with you that, that she won in less than convincing fashion, but you talk about her so-called spacewalks, uh, which is what the always entertaining Rick Bell has, has started to refer to her, her, her veers off the script as like her, her almost weekly problems for her comms team and her staff the, uh, last week it was the her, her version of, of history of 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 you know canada's uh, you know indigenous people in canada and then, and then sort of canada's you know i mean if we look back over the last 200 years exactly how that went down her version of history which she doubled down on on her weekend radio show that's the most recent one uh, but then there was the handshake with the prime minister before that and then there were a hundred other things before that which actually might be a strategy, and we can get into that in, in just a second. But do you figure that the more that time that passes, the tougher it's going to be for Danielle Smith to win? Or does she have some sort of a Teflon coating that some politicians just seem to have where these things just don't seem to stick? So I think she does. Uh, I'm not sure you know, the degree to which it, it is... Uh, fully, you know, stick proof. Uh, but, you know, to her leadership win uh, issue, I think people were expecting a, a Pierre Poilievre sort of margin of victory, you know, that she would win with, you know, on the first ballot with, you know, 60% of the votes. And and it took, you know, what was it? Eight ballots, yeah, six several, ballots. It took yeah. a long time. Yeah. So I think that was why there was a belief that, oh, maybe the party's going to fracture. Maybe, you know, the, 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 the knives are going to come out for her fairly quickly. And instead, she has really kind of sealed that party up uh, they are united. Uh, they are as united as I've seen them in since basically the pandemic. Um, and she has them all pushing in the same direction. And, you know, I've written about this. The The prime minister did her an enormous favor by dropping the, the just transition stuff right in her lap. You know, if if the election is about who is better at punching Justin Trudeau in the nose, she is going to win. And that is why she is going to try to keep the, the, the election in that frame for as long as she possibly can. As to the spacewalks, I, I think it is a strategy. Um, if you're the NDP and you're always playing whack-a-moles, you know, pointing out her latest gaffe, her latest bizarre statement, you are not talking about your message. You are not talking about what you would do for the province. You are not talking about your vision for how you would create prosperity and wealth. And to me right now, the litmus test is this orphan well program. This this is a giant softball. You're talking uh, to our to star. NDP. Our star, yeah. 
um, you know, this is this is the equivalent of what the the feds gave to Danielle Smith with with the just transition. The NDP should be able to build their entire election message around this issue. And and Danielle's history with helping the oil and gas industry out, with helping her friends, helping Preston Manning and just say, look, she's in it to help them. We're in it to help you. That's the message. If they want to if they want me to give them a little present here, that's my present. That is your election message. It's not health care. It's not we are better stewards of the oil and gas industry. It's we're here for you and she's there for them. And I think there is a there is a way to sort of mine that gold for the next three months in a way that ties everything together, that creates an overarching narrative and makes people understand what your value proposition is beyond just being opposed to Danielle Smith. Uh, if people didn't catch our conversation with Reagan Boychuk and Mark Doran, uh, it was uh, Thursday of last week. You can check it out. Alberta's Orphans, the name of the episode. You'll find it uh, wherever you get your podcast. Find it on our YouTube channel as well. They get into this R-Star uh, program, which is being widely panned, Max, as as basically a $20 billion giveaway uh, to, to you know big oil. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, that's probably the most generous or understated assessment of it. A lot of people are talking about it virtually as a scam. Uh, saying that it's unethical. Uh, I, when I introduce you, I, 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 of course, just say, you know who he is. He's the lead columnist at Canada's National Observer. I, I rarely anymore point out the fact that you, you were the, uh, what were you, the, the editor-in-chief, I believe, of, of Alberta Oil Magazine. You've written about oil and energy for a long time. Can we take a second to talk about R-Star? Can we talk? I want to I get back to the just transition as well, because I'm trying to wrap my mind around something. But R-Star... First, uh, this to me is something that really, if the doors blew off, it could could almost bring down a government. Uh, if it actually were to play out the way that it did with the dollars that we're talking about and the backroom handshakes that are implied here, what's your assessment of this? No punches pulled. I mean, it's it's the hottest garbage in the history of hot garbage. It, it is it is so ridiculous uh, that we are proposing to give, you know hundreds of millions and potentially $20 billion in taxpayer money to an industry that just posted its most profitable year ever. Um, there, there are all sorts of you know, moral hazard issues, as I'm sure Regan and Mark brought up. It, it, is, it does not help the issue it is claiming to try to help. Uh, it may be a giveaway to people who have donated to Danielle in the recent past or have employed her. There are so many different stink lines coming off of this. Uh, it is almost hard to capture them all. And, and the NDP should try to make a meal out of this, but they have to be able to tie it to a broader narrative, right? Now, I, I think there is definitely an opportunity for them to, to you know, win votes in Calgary on their sort of healthcare message, but they have to give voters here comfort that they can be trusted on the economy and trusted on oil and gas first. And that doesn't mean out-competing uh, Danielle Smith in the UCP on hating Justin Trudeau. It means making a case that you are actually the better steward of their financial and economic interest than she is. And this is a perfect opportunity to do this. This program comes into place. It will be the blackest black eye on the industry, I think, in recent times. I mean, forget about ethical oil. That argument, you know, it's, it is pretty much dead, but this would put it six feet under the ground. Uh, it would embarrass the industry. It would make it harder to win social license. You know, the, the biggest enemy of the oil and gas industry in Canada right now is Danielle Smith. They should be able to make that argument. Uh, they should be able to make it compellingly and they should have the confidence to do it in Calgary because that gives people the freedom to go into the ballot box and say, OK, I'm going to vote on education. I'm going to vote on health care. I'm going to vote on pandemic policy and things like that. 
But if they're not willing to make that argument and if they're not able to make it fluently and compellingly, uh, then people will revert back to sort of a fear-based frame. And, and you know, then the, the, the F. Trudeau stuff uh, may carry the day. You know, one of the things that's tough to watch is uh, is is thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's all there's almost like the Pied Piper analogy that can come into play here. Uh, people whose livelihood depends on uh, oil and gas. In this example, um, feeling like one group is demonizing them and trying to kill their bread and butter, uh, while at the same time following and supporting another group that, that in, in my mind, is operating in, in somewhat disingenuous fashion, in dangerous fashion. Let me tell you a real quick story. Uh, grew up with a fellow by the name of Mark, and Mark went into business with his dad in the mid-1990s, Max, buying up the, the rights to or the ownership of as many payphones as they possibly could. And I suspect that they were able to afford the payphones at the time because Nobody wanted to own them anymore because industry was moving on. And now I can't even think of where there's a pay phone in this city of a million that I call home, let alone would I have the 35 cents in my pocket to be able to use it because everybody, including nine and 10 year olds, have their own mobile phone. This talk about the just transition, how it's being spun to oil and gas workers as an attempt to kill their industry and kill their jobs as opposed to, and I'm not trying to carry water for the program. I'm just acknowledging what to me is painfully obvious, which Stephen Harper said 10 years ago that at some point, obviously, oil and gas is going to be phased out. At some point, the world will move on to more sustainable forms of energy, and we should be doing everything we can to equip and empower and educate a skilled workforce to be able to adopt and adapt and, and, and adjust and to find new employment, better employment, future employment in these new and emerging industries. To me, I can't wrap my mind. I mean, I can wrap my mind around the political opposition to the just transition. But every time I talk to a friend that works in oil and gas and the smart ones, I think, understand what's going on right now. But it's the gullible ones that I worry about. The politics of the just transition. Maybe it's the word transition. I don't know what it is, but the politics of this are standing in the way of what I think is best for the workers. Would you agree? Uh, uh, is there a number higher than a hundred percent? Cause if so, that would be my answer. I mean, look, the liberals have, the federal liberals have created this situation uh, through their, their inability to communicate their own policies. And I had a whole column ripping the prime minister on, on that recently, you know, they, you're right. It's not it's not so much just it's transition. I mean, does anyone really want to be transitioned uh, by someone else? Like that sounds unpleasant. You want to be able to master of your own destiny. You want to choose what you want to do with your life. You don't want someone to tell you that you have to transition your livelihood. So, yeah, it's it's terrifying. Um, the, the fact of the matter is this is a global reality. You know, it's global automakers that are that are retooling their fleets. It is global financial institutions that are applying the pressure. It is not the prime minister of Canada. He is not that powerful. Sorry, folks. Um, but the feds have not messaged this in a way that that allows for there to be a constructive conversation space. It reminds me a lot of the 2016 election, where you had the Rust Belt uh, in the United States and, you know, factories moving abroad. And, and, and you had Hillary Clinton saying, well, you know, it's it's that's globalization and we'll do what we can to help you. And you had Donald Trump saying, I'll bring it all back now. Was it realistic to bring it all back? Of course not. But if you're one of those affected workers, who would you rather trust? The person who gives you the hope or the person who takes it away from you? And so that's always been my, my advice and my sort of guidance to, to progressive politicians on this issue is talk about the hope. 
talk about the opportunity here. This thing is happening for sure, but there is a trillion dollar opportunity unfolding as we speak. You know, there was a big carbon capture project that was just announced in Texas the other day, a billion dollars. That could be happening in Alberta. We could be having all of these great, amazing new jobs that are going to be created if we sort of all pulled together in the same direction. Uh, instead, we are wasting energy arguing about wording and arguing about, you know, who loves the industry more. And at the end of the day, the people who pay the price, not going to be the politicians on, on either side of the bench. It's going to be the workers. 100%. And, and, and that, that is really, really frustrating. And I think there's a good opportunity for the NDP here to, to, to lead this message. They are, they are a workers' party. They should be speaking for the workers here. But they seem so afraid of this conversation and so afraid of coming down to Calgary and mixing it up with the UCP on this issue that they're letting the UCP drive the bus and they might drive it all the way to another four years in government. Yeah, I, I talk a lot with you uh, about energy and oil and gas and uh, for obvious reasons, but I want to talk to you about healthcare for a second. I asked Rachel Notley about this last Wednesday. People can check out the interview, her take on so-called private delivery. And again, you want to talk about supercharged verbiage. I mean, there you have it. And and uh, good friends of mine, I, I talked about my one friend. I promised him I'll never use his name, but he's an orthopedic surgeon. And, and he's got red flags flying all over the place with regards to private delivery. And this guy's an entrepreneur. This guy's a skilled surgeon, but he's got a, a bunch of compelling reasons why he thinks it's a bad idea me as a civilian that knows a little bit less but but looks around me and is trying to come up with ideas recognizing that we have some real problems on our hands with regards to wait times with regards to availability with regards to attracting and retaining talented surgeons and nurses and hospital personnel there does need to be something that changes and you reference this in your piece. People can check it out, nationalobserver.com. Again, we're talking to Max Fawcett. Rachel Notley needs to hit the panic button. That's what the headline says. You point out the same thing we talked about, which is that nearly 60% of Albertans polled have said that they're open to some form of private delivery to help cut down wait times. This is a political hot potato if ever there has been one. How would you handle this if you were Rachel Notley? It's a tough one. You saw me take a breath there because I'm not sure that she can have a, you know, sort of a, a more open conversation about this without alienating key parts of her base in Edmonton, you know, key parts of the, the coalition she's built. Um, I, you know, I would talk about innovation. I would talk about the fact that it must fundamentally be about improving healthcare outcomes and ensuring that the public never pays a dime for it, right? That that the the fundamental principle here that we have to protect is that the public doesn't have to get their paycheck out when they go to the hospital or go see their doctor, but that we can't let the system deteriorate in the name of having this sort of ideological commitment to no private involvement when we already have lots of private involvement. You know, like uh, our family doctors in Alberta are running businesses uh, and have been for a long time. Um, so I, I just think that if they if they treat this healthcare issue like it's the same as it was 10 years ago they're going to find themselves badly badly outflanked on it because it, it is shifting very fast you know the you don't drive a car by looking out the rearview mirror you look out the front of the car and out the front of our little canadian car right now is a demographic boom that is going to or a bulge that is going to stress our healthcare system even more than it's already stressed we cannot continue to do business as usual uh, and I think people have an increasing sense of that. That's why those poll numbers are showing uh, what, you know, what Daryl Bricker, who's the CEO of Ipsos, who did the poll, said was the biggest shift he's seen in his lifetime on healthcare. If the NDP does not respond to that shift, 
they are going to probably find themselves losing on the healthcare issue in the parts of Calgary where they need to win. You know, I mean, I'm sure in downtown Calgary, there's there's huge support for, you know, no private activity, public only, but in these sort of more suburban communities, in the places that are the swing ridings, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more openness to the idea of private involvement uh, as long as it's publicly funded and publicly paid for. And they, they like, as I said in the piece, they need to read the room down here. Uh, the room is different than it is in Edmonton. And the room is different than it was four years ago or eight years ago. And, and I would just strongly encourage them to, to spend as much time as they can down here, talk to as many liberals, you know, red Tories, non-New Democrats as they can to get a sense of what the people whose votes they need to win over are thinking. You, you can't win the votes of your base twice. And, you know, I've been critical of conservatives for years. Uh, I think it's why they've lost a couple of federal elections now is that they, they let the base run their strategy. And, and I don't want to see, uh, you know, my bias is pretty clear here. I want to see uh, this, this Smith government be defeated. I think they're bad for Alberta. I think they implement bad policies. Um, but right now they're doing good politics. Did you make up on the fly like I was talking earlier in the show and I said jobs economy pipelines, which is, of course, Jason Kenney's platform, or at least his, you know, his his uh, slogan in 2019. And, and, and you said jobs economy prosperity. Uh, did you come up with that on the fly or is that what you're hearing? Is that the buzz? Are, are people using that prosperity word right now? If I said that, I, I'm sure someone else came up with it. Because uh, that's an interesting. You know, it, it would be interesting to see how that might play. Just to be nerdy for a second, if, if I if I worked in marketing or branding, if I was a political strategist that was branding a campaign, uh, prosperity might it might be an interesting word to invoke in, in in the midst of what we're seeing right now. Right? I mean, like you know, a yeah. friend of mine talking to her yesterday. Got, it's not funny, but they've got to renew their mortgage. We had to do it a couple of months ago. It's a nightmare time to renew your mortgage right now. And I know in the 80s that there were credit card interest rates on mortgages. <laughs> I know. Save your emails. But people aren't used to 6%. We locked in at just under 6%, Max. Our previous one was under Oof. 1%, right? I mean, inflation in some parts of the country is over 10%. National average is still over 7 I mean, I just think the word prosperity right now as a promise uh, would be an interesting one to try to invoke. It, it takes me back to the sort of snake oil salesman type preachers and the prosperity gospel. And I think it might be a gutsy word to try to invoke right now. What do you think? Yeah, they could do, they could do jobs, environment, prosperity, if they wanted to sort of nod it at the fact that, you know, cause I think, uh, you know, there's widespread support for supporting the environment. Now what that is depends on who you are, but you know, that could tap into the coal mining stuff. It could mm -hmm. tap into the park stuff. It could tap into the climate policy stuff. But, you know, th that was the one of the sort of magic aspects of Kenny's campaign in 2019. They had this brilliant, uh, small, uh, easily repeatable slogan that everyone understood. I, jobs, economy, pipeline. I, those are three things I want. Sure, I'll vote for that. And the NDP campaign back then, certainly, and, and this time so far, just it lacks that sort of simplicity and fluency that people who are not wonks, who are not party insiders, who are not you know, political nerds like us can hear and just sort of vibe with and go, yeah, that's, that's me. I like that. Um, and then they just pound that they, they build their campaign around those themes. Um, that, that would be, I think a, a good way to go. Um, you know, harp, harping on Daniel Smith's negatives, the way they did on Kenny in 2019, they know that doesn't work. Um, chasing, chasing her around and playing sort of, you know, uh, spacewalk whack-a-mole that doesn't work. Um, and I think sort of, 
trying to be the, the great saviors of public health care. And as much as the polling says they're the most trusted on that issue, and as Evan said, and he's very right, you know, the NDP and the Liberals in Ontario tried to do that, didn't work. Uh, you know, people knew what Doug Ford was going to do to the healthcare system, and, and he's doing it. And they genuinely didn't care, um, you know, for whatever reason. So I think they have enough proof points to know that, that the, the path they're walking right now, you know, one that seems awfully familiar to, to the one that the BC NDP walked in 2013, is not going to take them where they want to go. And the longer they wait to shift, the harder it's going to be to uh, to get back on track. If you're listening to this right now on podcast, I want you to go ahead and subscribe to Max's newest venture, Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. How are you liking that game? Is it, is it different for you than writing columns and, and the magazine long form stuff you've been doing for many years? Oh, my God. It's so hard. Uh, <laughs> I have so much respect. I have so much respect for for what you do. And I mean, I did already, but even more respect and, and for anyone who's a host, because you know, I, I'm very happy sitting here on this side of the camera, shooting my mouth off, uh, you know, uh, having opinions, but having to sit down and prepare and listen to people and, and sort of build the, the narrative arc over the course of a conversation is very difficult. Um, I think I'm getting better at it, uh, but it is definitely sort of a, a work in progress. I've enjoyed, you know, I talked to Derek Fildebrandt in my most recent one. I saw that. Uh, that was surprisingly delightful. Um you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm recording one today at 11 uh, on carbon capture and storage with uh, someone from environmental defense. So I'm trying to sort of get outside my bubble, you know, mm -hmm. talk to people on the left and the right. Uh, I've invited Ms. Notley on. Uh, I believe I had an agreement, although I may not have one anymore after today. We'll see. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm enjoying the challenge. I think it's important to kind of push yourself in new directions. And, and you know, podcasting is 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 a lot of fun. I know that maybe I don't want to characterize your podcast. I'll let you speak uh, on your own behalf, but kind of the premise of your podcast, or at least several of your episodes, is that you will intentionally bring on guests with whom you disagree, right? That's kind of the idea. Um, I haven't listened to your conversation. Uh, I know it was just released yesterday or two days ago uh, with you and Derek Fildebrandt. You can guarantee I'm going to check that out. And I love that you sort of unlikely pals, you, you and Quick Dick McDick appeared to hit it off. Uh, the guy is just owning Saskatchewan's media landscape and a very likable guy, whether or not you agree with his politics, whether or not you agree with the way he expresses it. Uh, to me, that's irrelevant. Um, he's a very likable guy, and, and I thought it was great that you talked to him. Well, I think the, the biggest, and I love him too, he's great. Uh, he's wrong about a whole bunch of stuff, by sure. the way, but I'm sure he feels the same <laughs> way about me. He does. Um, but I think I think the big thing that I'm learning is that you know, we've been so sort of stuck in our own silos on Twitter feeds, on Zoom calls, that we've sort of forgotten how much we have in common with each other. Uh, the, 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 the informational world that we live in right now is all about the 10% we don't agree on. And some of that stuff is super important. Uh, you know, there's some people, you know, me and Derek will have fundamental disagreements that will, that will color any conversation we have. But we also have a lot in common. And I think people are more likable when you can look them in the eye and see who they are as a person rather than sort of seeing their avatar on Twitter or, uh, you know, sending an email to them, uh, you know, uh, over Gmail. Like, it's, we need to get back to that making eye contact with people. And I'm sure dozens of people have said this before me, but that has been my big takeaway is that I'm happy to disagree with people, but I am surprised at how much I agree. And I think focusing on the agreement uh, it, it makes life more pleasant. Um, you know, I'm always going to be a disagreeable person. Derek said uh, in our podcast, you know, we both play dicks on Twitter, and, and that's true. Um, <laughs> but I think it's nice to be reminded that, 
you know, we have a lot more respect for others, even the ones we disagree with when we get to look them in the eye. I've, I've sat on, hey, look at that. The studio audience loves what you just brought to the table, Max. A standing ovation here in the Real Talk studio. Uh, Derek and I had a very similar conversation. We sat on a political panel together about six months ago. And, uh, you, you know, you would expect sometimes when, when certain people get together and sit next to each other that you could th- cut through the tension with a knife. But actually, that was not the case. And, and you know, you find yourselves uh, chatting over a cold beer and, and I like it. I mean, yesterday I sat here with, with Brett Kissel and, and a lot of people, I mean, there's been obviously a, a ton of feedback from that interview yesterday uh, with Kissel and, and, uh, and one of the recurring themes from a lot of the commenters, not all of them, obviously, was that I, you know, I disagree with him. I don't love his friendships with these certain people. I didn't love that song, but he came across to them, uh, to some of these people as likable or they were surprised that they ended up finding him more likable than they thought they would at the outset of the interview. And to me, I talked about it with him yesterday. It's kind of the whole idea uh, that has been around for millennia, which is breaking bread with people and looking at people in the whites of their eyes and sharing space with them and and realizing that we do have some commonalities regardless of our our differences in perspective. So I'm excited to see what happens. I know you're just seven episodes in with your podcast. Again, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett, and you can find that uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's great to see your face again, pal. Thanks for giving us your time. Yeah, you as well. Looking forward to uh, seeing the whites of your eyes in person one day soon. Yeah, buddy. Studio's always open. Beer's always cold. (laughs) So we'll see you soon. That's Max Fawcett, lead columnist with Canada's National Observer. That's exactly. I love what he said about the 10% is what we don't agree on. It's so true. Everyone wants the same thing. Affordable housing. Great education for their kids. Uh, sustainable, uh, affordable health care. Mm-hmm. It's the little things we don't disagree on. So you know all those big things, we're only disagreeing on how to get there. And and we just need to figure out a way to compromise so we can do it. I, I want to, I, I mean, I don't, we, we never want to sort of uh, pull back the curtain too far Wizard of Oz style, but I, <laughs> I will let people know in case we don't actually have a live studio audience no, and, and, and you do you do have those controls at your disposal and yeah, you use and I and don't you use them, them sparingly I do so when we do hear that raucous applause it, it means that something's really landed with you something's really resonated with because you we all it's so funny when you talk to people there's only a few things we don't agree on and and there's so people are so staunch people are so dug in on these few mm. things and it's like I, I I don't I'm bringing it up again, but Brett Kissel said yesterday, like he doesn't go out and write a song to try and hurt people. I don't think anybody out there go gets up in the morning and says, "How many people can I hurt? How many mm. people can I offend?" We just we all want the same things. We just want to get there in a different way, a different approach. You so. know, one of the things I think is a really good example of this is is the opioid crisis. A hundred percent, right? Um, I mean, aside from the real assholes, uh, nobody wants to see. Someone People who use to drugs, drugs die. Lose. Nobody wants to see opioid poisonings no. and drug deaths. But not everybody agrees on how to address it. 100%. And I know that the, 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 the ardent and strident and, 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 and operating from a point of great conviction, the advocates of supervised consumption, you've heard them on this show many times. Mm-hmm. My brother is one of them, and I've got a world of respect for what he does. Uh, to them, they'll say the evidence is this, and 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 we should operate based on evidence. Period. And it's hard to argue against mm-hmm. evidence. Other people will say, "Well, hang on a second. I um, you know, they'll have concerns about the fact that what they believe to be a permissive move on behalf of society. They don't like the idea of a safe supply because they. Why are we giving people drugs? There's an ideological, not necessarily evidence based." Mm-hmm. 
or you know, and, and let's be honest too, people can always find their own evidence, right? I mean, if you can, it, it, that's what debate clubs are all about in high school. <laughs> that's what debating's all about, mm-hmm. all the way up through politics is finding the evidence that suits and supports your argument. But people will say, well, I have a problem ideologically with providing drugs for people. I have a problem inherently with providing a facility where people can inject illegal drugs, right? They, they can't get past that hump, mm-hmm. but they'll support detox or they'll support outpatient or inpatient rehab. programs or what have you, rehab, right? So I think that's a good example. And we want to have those conversations. We want to challenge our norms. We want to challenge our beliefs. I mean, you think we're going to call a show real talk if we're not going to go there? <laughs> people are. And that's the other thing. I loved when he said 10 percent because it's so true. People want to make it seem like everyone's so divided and on the far left and right of every issue. It's not. It's this small little window in the middle where we just have to figure things out. Mm. Justin says, actually, guys, there are absolutely people that get up in the morning and set out to piss people off. <laughs> They're in the minority and tend to live online, but they do exist. Justin, we hear from them every day. And I agree with you, of course. Colette says people want certain things for themselves, but not everybody because they don't consider everyone equal. And it's a matter of values. Tony says, Jespo, I'm seeing a whole bunch of empty chairs in that studio that could be filled with some of your loyal listeners. Hint, hint. We that do from have, Tony. We do have plans and we have like people can't see, but we have behind us here. We also have a green room. Yeah. And we have an outdoor lounge, which We've got also whole... plays the show live for yeah. the other residents in this building where we could have a live audience. So yeah. we're working no, we, on things. We could. I mean, I mean, the best way to get in on that is to support Real Talk on Patreon. You just go to ryanjesperson.com. You click on connect. And, 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 and the first folks that are going to be in here in any sort of live audience scenario are going to be our incredible Patreon supporters. Uh, they had first crack at the bourbon. They had a special Christmas party. And of course, we value them more than you would ever believe leave every wednesday we, we get a chance to sort of head out to the mountains and, and like basically reset right we get a chance to, to to remind ourselves about the beauty and the magic that awaits us in jasper national park presented by our friends at tourism jasper it's my jasper memories and one of the things that tourism jasper does best I mean, they are master storytellers. And a big part of this is their Venture Beyond video series. These are video features that introduce you to Jasper locals. You understand what makes them tick, what's contributed to their connection uh, to Jasper National Park. And, and there's a new episode out that we want you to check out. Uh, as a professional mountain guide, Max Dara has seen a lot of wild places, but nothing compares to seeing Jasper's nature through his daughter's eyes in the newest episode of venture beyond this series we explore maline canyon and discover how the daroff family balances safety with adventure entrepreneurship and sustainability Here, here's just a sneak peek of the video i went there when i was you know a young climber not really knowing what i was doing that much and being a little bit overwhelmed with the you know, the beauty of the place, the boldness of some of the climbing in there. And my relationship with the mountains has evolved. My daughter, Parker, loves to explore. She loves to be outside, trying new things. It's really a source of great joy to witness Parker discover the park for the first time. Lean Canyon provides inspiration to most people that walk through it. It reminds me of what the mountains do in a community or with people is that 
you know, that shared sense of awe and, and wonder. I'm really excited about being able to, you know, to show Parker the type of wondrous things. The fact that it's so close to Jasper is a pretty, a pretty great gift for this town. My name is Max Dara. I'm Parker's dad, and I run a small guiding company called Rock Move Out Adventures, and we live in Jasper. You can check out the full video feature by subscribing to Tourism Jasper's YouTube channel. And once you learn more about Max and Parker and what makes them tick, you can explore the other Venture Beyond features. These are the movers and shakers that, of course, from the human element, make Jasper what it is. You can check out more about what Tourism Jasper does and start making your own plans to head out to the mountains by visiting Jasper. Dot travel. Have you ever done the Moline Canyon Ice Walk? I've got it. If you, I haven't. But Johnny, I, let me just say that video, like, it it's pretty is moving. bonkers. Mm -hmm. It is incredible. The most stunning. It feels like you're on another planet. Mm -hmm. It honestly feels like you're on another planet. These, like, Moline Canyon in the summer with its thundering waterfalls, and it's just, uh, it's obviously not as accessible. You can't get down there for obvious reasons because there's mm -hmm. a rushing river through there, uh, or at least not down there on foot. Uh, but in the winter, to be able to go down there and you see ice climbers, we were down there uh, last winter with our family, yeah. and uh, Wyatt and I, our little guy, were sitting there from from a safe distance, obviously, watching these ice climbers mm -hmm. scale these frozen waterfalls. Ooh. I mean, it is just on a whole other level of ex exploration and, mm -hmm. and just really, really beautiful. How'd your Valentine's Day go yesterday, by the way? <laughs> I didn't even ask you that. Well, uh, it was pretty good. You know what was funny is we didn't have a plan this year, and you know that's partly my fault, isn't it? Always uh, the guy's fault. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, we went out for dinner, and we just we were sitting there, and I was like, "What do you want to do? Do you want to go to a movie? Do you want to do this? Do you yeah, want to yeah. do that?" And my wife said, "You know what I want to do? It's really weird, but I want to go to Costco." And I just want you to let me buy whatever I want. And I said, oh, are you serious? That's amazing. She's like, I need new socks. I need this. I need that. So we went to Costco and Costco's closing at like 830. We had dinner at like seven. So it's like eight, 815. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it Smart was a move on your part. It was She's like, going to get whatever she wants. It was like one of those game shows where you're like, grab as many things <laughs> as you can at the time. And she threw it like she got some supplements you need, obviously, in these wholesale huge sizes. Yeah. So they're going to last like three to six months. She got socks. She got some uh, plant-based baby bells. She threw in, uh, you know, some some tofu in the most... Yeah. Like it's going to last us like a year. I don't know if she, <laughs> she's going to start cooking with it. She uses it in a lot of her recipes, but it was just a really cool way to spend Valentine's Day. We it was she was just like, I just want to go and get whatever I want. I think the bill and I, you know, I can tell you it was like just under 200 bucks. Not too bad. But hey, what, what's a good bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolate? Probably going to cost you the same thing. And I oh, said, buddy. you know what? We should make this a tradition every year where we just <laughs> you come to Costco and you take whatever you want. Uh, but my wife's my wife's kind of like that. We were talking about heart shaped jewelry yesterday, and how you know most most men and women don't really like heart shaped themed things. But if you see someone wearing it, you're like, oh, their significant other bought this for their partner. That's what happened here. <laughs> I actually, when we went to get her engagement ring, I found this amazing. It was like a pink stone, and it was heart shaped. And I showed it to her, and she was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> And I said, you know what? We did the same thing. 
she went, she picked out her stone, she picked out the cut, she picked out everything. Smart man. And that's, yeah. So, yeah. Smart man, Johnny. Sometimes things work out. Hey, I wanted to get into a couple (laughs) other quick comments uh, before we wrap for the day. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for checking out today's episode. Make sure you go back and and watch those other interviews we were talking about. If you haven't seen them yet, yesterday's with Brett Kissel, last week's with Rachel Notley and Regan Boychek and and Mark Doran and everybody else. You can find it all, of course, on our YouTube channel and anywhere you get your podcast. But a shout out to Donna who absolutely filled our sales yesterday with this email. She said, Ryan, I was just watching your Kissel interview on YouTube. She says, your sponsors <laughs> are so lucky to partner with this show. She says, I'm a senior living in a tiny condo, and you make me think I should go out and check out Gwenny University, Athabasca University, and go get my yard done with Eden Landscaping. And I think I'll, I'll maybe just settle right now for a trip uh, to the Baseline Road Dairy Queen and go get something chocolate. She says, you and your, your sidekick, Johnny, I hope you don't mind that, Johnny. She says, you and Johnny are a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Donna, much love to you. That email made our day. And also a big shout out to Troy, who wrote into the show. He said, hey, hey what was the direct contact again for Kubi Energy? Uh, Troy's a firefighter. And he said he says one of one of his pals on, on shift, and, and Troy's, his own personal evolution is an amazing one. Uh, Troy says, yeah, this guy's looking to, to put solar up on his roof, and he, and he wants to make sure... Kubi's a reputable firm. He says, I know that if you're advertising them on Real Talk, we probably already know the answer, he says, but I want to hear directly from the horse's mouth. I said, not only that, not only are they reputable, Troy, but they're the best in the business. So I let Kubi know. And you want to know what it's like to deal with a company like Kubi? The CEO of Kubi Energy says, why don't you put that guy directly in touch with me? There you go. And we'll make sure that they get the white glove service. We partner with companies and organizations that go above and beyond to get you everything you possibly can out of your investment with that group. And that includes the team at Kubi Energy providing solar energy solutions to power your life, whether it's a residential installation, a commercial and agricultural and industrial, whether you want to go off the grid with your cottage with reliable power sources, or maybe you have a plan that's going to require some custom fabrication. The team at Kubi does it better than anybody else in Western Canada. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. Don't forget about that Canada Greener Homes Grant, $40,000 loan, interest-free for 10 years from the feds. Kubi will do all the paperwork for you. Now, once you got solar on your roof, like Troy's buddy is going to do, then you're going to want to take your utility business over to Park Power. Because sometimes, even though you got solar, you're going to need electricity, right? You're going to need natural gas. And obviously, everybody needs internet these days. Well, if you bundle those three services with the friendly local utilities provider, Park Power, using the promo code REALTALK23, that's realtalk 23 they're going to knock $150 off your first bill. That's enough to go get heart-shaped jewelry at Costco, John. Don't 150 do it. bucks. 150 bucks off your first bill with the promo code REALTALK23. That's from Park Power at parkpower.ca. They're powering our hashtag at RealTalkRJ. Friends, coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk, I'm really excited to check in with a columnist that has got a wonderful perspective on childhood. Shelly Cook writes for the Winnipeg Free Press and her insights on how quickly these magical moments pass us by paused me to think as a dad of young ones myself. It's going to be a wonderful conversation we can't wait to have. On Friday, Jeremy Klaus is from The Sprawl and an improv Real Talk Roundtable.
Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.